Hi everyone, I'm Steve Joy. I'm the Head of Researcher Development and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest RD Audio podcast recording. In this episode, I talk to Emma Baker about the power of storytelling. Emma is a Cambridge alumna. She studied French and German here and she's worked for 16 years in broadcast journalism all around the British Isles, but also she spent several years as the Cambridge correspondent for ITV Anglia News. And during that time, she worked quite a lot with researchers in the university on shaping their story for the public about the work they do, what they found out, what the benefits of it might be. So she has lots of experience turning complex research into compelling stories. She's still a journalist and she also works as a coach and a trainer. And it was in that capacity that she recently delivered a masterclass on the RD Live programme. On the back of that, I asked her to record a chat with me about her experience of storytelling, what makes a great story, how to structure it, how to find a convincing hook. And she also asked me some questions about how I think that relates to our experiences in academia and the kinds of storytelling that we need to do. Mostly in this discussion, we're thinking about communicating research to non-specialist audiences, but some of the storytelling techniques that Emma shares with us are absolutely relevant to the kinds of academic writing that you're already doing. So there's a good mix of general principles and practical advice that I hope you'll find useful. Enjoy. Thanks very much for joining us this afternoon, Emma. Um, we, you and I have been having a number of conversations in recent months about storytelling and how it fits into your professional life and how it's relevant to our researchers here. So I thought I'd start off with that question. Can you tell us a bit about your background and your experience with storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Steve. It's a delight to be here talking about storytelling, uh, which is one of my favourite subjects. Uh, yeah, so I'm a journalist and broadcaster. So I actually started out uh, in journalism when I was a student at Cambridge uh, on my year abroad. So I was studying French and German and I went over to Paris to work for The Independent and the BBC. And so I've stayed in the game ever since. So storytelling is obviously at the heart of journalism. Every journalist is a storyteller by trade. And it's a competitive world. So you've got to grab the viewer's attention or the listener's attention or the reader's attention and be clear and concise and powerful with your storytelling to really keep their attention, which of course is scarce. So um, that's that, those skills of storytelling are right at the heart of it. And it's working out the most interesting part of the story and what matters to your reader or your viewer. So um, I, I used to think that these skills were specific to my trade, but actually there is more and more recognition right across all industries really, and particularly in the world of leadership, interestingly, that storytelling is absolutely key to being a powerful communicator. Uh, and, and also you see that in our personal lives, you know, so many of us now have a social media accounts, be it Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and we are all using great storytelling techniques every day to, you know, make sure that we get the most likes or the most number of retweets. So I would argue we are all uh, great storytellers in one way or another. And it's a lot of it is about recognition of that and, and using that to, to further things in other areas of our lives, careers particularly. Um, so, but I'm interested in how that fits into academia because I can, I can see connections myself, but where do you think storytelling fits into a researcher's life, for example? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, again, a bit like what you're saying, it actually it is it underpins so much of what we're doing in research all of the time. You know, the 
writing up a dissertation and publishing a paper, giving a, a, a talk at a conference, giving a presentation, they're all kinds of narratives, aren't they? They're all stories. You know, even people at school who learn about writing up an experiment where you say what you what the hypothesis was, what the methodology was, what you what results you actually got, and therefore what conclusions you're drawing from it. That simple narrative structure still exists in research at doctoral, postdoctoral level it's just it's more sophisticated but papers are still published using a basic kind of formula like that but I also think what's really happening more and more in academia is that focus on how we engage different audiences in our research so we hear a lot about impact about engaging different publics but also about interdisciplinarity I think there are lots of ways that we have to find the story that helps the people we want to engage with understand not just what we have found out but perhaps why we found it out in the first place, how we went about it. So uh, is it the methodology we chose that made a nice connection with somebody else? Or is it actually the findings? Is it the impact of that work? And I think there are just some really basic practical things on the funding market and on the job market where storytelling is really powerful. You have to write a lay summary for most grant applications, which is where you attempt in a very short form to tell a story to a non-expert audience about what you've been doing and what you want to do. And on the job market, it's all about having a compelling narrative. Who are you? What have you done? What are you hoping to achieve? So to me, storytelling is just as fundamental to the life of a researcher as it is to what you're saying about journalism, broadcast media, and leadership in particular as well. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I think, um, I mean, I know this is a bit of a dirty phrase, uh, particularly in academia, but I think if you think about it in this way, I find this quite helpful. In we are all in sales in one way or another. And I know that makes lots of people bristle, but we are in every communication, in, in, in lots of conversations we have, we are selling something. It may not be financially, but it may not be looking for financial buy-in, but often we're looking for emotional buy-in in the story that we're telling. And I think that is absolutely key in academia, I would imagine. As a researcher, when you're telling someone about your research, you know, in all those different scenarios that you laid out there, you are still in some way trying to get buy-in from that person in one way or another. And I think that is a really, um, I think that's a really important way to kind of focus the mind when it comes to, to telling your story, you know, thinking about that, you know, that result you're after, because actually a lot of the time when we're telling a story, um, no matter what the scenario it is, we are looking for some kind of result at the end of it. Would you agree with that? I absolutely would. And I think that there are many scenarios when, in terms of academic life, the very least that we want the other person to invest in the story we're telling is their attention. You talked about attention as a scarce resource in your intro. That's no less true in academia. If you just, the sheer volume of papers that are published, um, conferences that take place, the number of presentations that there are, you have to have something which is going to make someone bother to open that article, bother to attend that talk. And then also once you've got them, you need to keep their attention. It has to, it has to be interesting to them as individuals in different ways. And I think the big mistake that we make is we tend to train people in their science, in their scholarship, to think that it's all about the objectivity. And of course that's true. I mean, good quality research has to stand up to objective scrutiny it has to be to some extent decoupled from who did the work otherwise it's not terribly valid in in lots of cases but nevertheless you know when you're presenting at a conference when you are on the job market when you are sending in a funding application you are also what is 
being marketed, to use another um, phrase that we don't tend to like in higher education, you, you are what's being marketed to that person. Like, do you believe in me as the right person to carry out this next project? Do I fit well with your research group? Could you see how I could contribute something? So it's not just what have you achieved? It's not just the intellectual scientific capital that you've accrued through your technical mastery, through your knowledge. It's also what kind of a fit are you? And that to me is storytelling as well. What, what, what can I do to persuade you that having me on your team in your collaboration um, as a recipient of your funding is also to your benefit as well as to mine? And that's not, I think, objectively just about the data or the evidence. It's also about who we are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's absolutely fundamental. And I think recognising that is a really important first step on the way to becoming great at storytelling. I mean, if we just look at, you know, what makes storytelling so powerful, it's emotions, you know? And, and of course, I know um, that doesn't always sit well in academia. I totally understand that. But when it comes to telling the story of your research, I would argue there's nothing wrong in drawing on those emotions and actually I'd go further than saying it, it's really, really important in being able to, to get that attention. And the reason I say that is, you know, stories trigger emotions and emotions form relationships and that's trust and that's belief, which we all need um, to, to make things happen. And, you know, then relationships make that stuff happen. You know, it, it, it leads on to action and it's all well and good at having some fantastic research under your belt. But if you don't move that forward into action, what was the point? I mean, surely you want that kind of action to happen. I completely agree. And I think if we were just going to play that through in terms of a, a particular researcher's experience, one of the ways that I often notice that is it would be pretty normal for lots of people when, for example, publishing a paper in, a, in an academic journal, that the kind of style of writing they would use would be intentionally depersonalized. So you'd find sentences like critical gaps in the experimental data remain or you know, maybe if they're setting out what they plan to do, economic data will be analysed. But the truth is, that's not how human beings speak to each other. We tend to speak with people in the story. And I absolutely am not suggesting that anyone listening to this podcast needs to go away and, you know, approach um, an editor in a journal next time and say, by the way, I've put all the people back in this story. But I think if you are writing a lay summary to a funder, if you are speaking at the Festival of Ideas or sending out something on Twitter or engaging with the media or trying to tell your great grandma what you've been up to, um, then we do need to think about different modes of storytelling and the emotion then around, you know, critical gaps in the experimental data remain. We do not yet understand feels to me like a more emotional kind of connection point to someone. Okay, right, we don't understand something. Then you can go on to explain to me why that matters. Rather than economic data will be analysed, I will analyse, then I'm now with you. Okay, fine, well, so potentially, why might I want you to speak at my conference? Or um, why might I give you this funding? So to me, that emotional aspect is really connected to that putting the people back in. There are times when that is essential to the stories that we're telling about yeah. our research. Absolutely. And of course, a lot of it comes down to who is your audience. And I think when I work with clients one to one on this, that is a really important starting point. You know, who is your audience and what do you want to achieve from this? So, you know, where do you want your project to go? Why are you telling your story in the first place? And then who do you want to influence? Um, and that is is absolutely fundamental. Once you've worked out who your audience is, and once you've absolutely accepted that every audience is different, 
you can then go on to how do you go about telling your story? And of course, as a journalist, you know, if I was covering, um, say, a medical breakthrough for COVID treatment, if I was doing a report for Newsnight, that would be very different to a report that I was doing for Newsround, or if I was writing an article in The Times, or if I was telling my mum, you know, that's, there will be four different stories on the same subject, but they would be completely different in, in my starting point, possibly in the way I flesh that story out, you know, in the resolution, most certainly in the language. And, you know, that is really key. The way I told that story and the knowledge that I was assuming would be completely different. And I think that is so key to being able to tell great stories. I completely agree. And I think that one of the challenges for researchers, particularly in a very large, vibrant, research intensive environment like a like a UK university, is we can find ourselves having lots and lots of conversations with lots of people who have very similar levels of knowledge to us. And that's also where, for example, those kind of interdisciplinary conversations um, are really valuable. So my favorite example that I've given you before is when I talk to um, scientists um, about their work and they start talking about proteins, I sometimes have to remind them that to me, coming from the arts and humanities, protein is a food group or, or a, a certain kind of shake that I might have after a workout, right? It's not some, it's not some kind of complex macromolecule. I don't think of it in those terms. Does that make me stupid? No, I don't think it does. It just means I approach the language in a different point of view. And another one is the word discourse. If you come from a critical cultural studies kind of background, that has a very particular meaning, whereas to lots of people, it's just a fancy word for conversation. And I think recognizing we have to adapt to the different audiences is really key. And just one other thing I would say on that point is, I would say a lot of early career researchers, the first time they're applying for funding, the first time they're on the job market, tend to make an, an assumption that everyone they're dealing with is an expert. And actually it's a really significant pitfall. If you're applying, just because you're a chemist and you're applying to a chemistry department, doesn't mean that everybody on that um, panel, you know, on that reading the applications is, from that department in the first place, or even if they are, they share your level of expertise in the particular kind of physical chemistry that you do, for example. So that finding, that, that degree of comfort, I suppose, what I'm trying to say, where we have to be prepared to, maybe it's telling the same story in different words. I think that's where there's a real crossover between your profession and our profession. Yeah, I mean, two things come to mind, you know, it, when you're telling the story, don't assume knowledge and keep the language simple or, or at least pitch the language at the right level. And that involves getting yourself out of your comfort zone. So, for example, if I said to you, I'm just going to nip down the road and get a Yule Sot, which will make a fantastic nib for lunch. Uh, and I might even make it into a package if I have time to do uh, a PTC and a VO. Now, if you're not a broadcast journalist, you have no idea what I'm talking about. If you're a broadcast journalist, you went back and fat an eyelid because I'm talking in very normal language for within our industry. Outside of the industry, there's no way I would think about saying a sentence like that and expecting someone to understand. So it's just, just stopping and thinking, what is the language I'm using here? And is this right for the audience? Will they understand what I'm talking about? And sometimes that means stepping outside of your comfort zone and, and really paring the language down. And one thing I would just say on that, it's really important, even if you have a hugely intelligent audience, they don't assume that they're going to understand the language you're using. Um, you know, I, I, I've been to lots, I've worked with lots of different researchers during my time when I was working for ITV News in Cambridge. And um, a lot of the times they would start to explain to me their, their research. I 
would understand every other word in English. You know, it was it, it was really tough. And I have to say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I don't understand that, that, and that. Can you tell tell me this in layman's terms? And a lot of the things you're when you're a trainee journalist starting out in 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 broadcast journalism, you're often told, how would you tell this to your mates down the pub? And sometimes that's really helpful for pairing it right down using very simple language and thinking what really matters in this storytelling. And if you manage to grasp that, you're winning, I would say. And I think what feels really important to me about what you're saying, you know, how would you tell this to someone down the pub, um, is that there's a tendency I've experienced, at least in the conversations I've had with researchers over many years doing this kind of work, to assume the tendency is to, to assume that simplified language also means simplified ideas. And I fundamentally disagree with that. I think it's it's so much harder to clarify your thinking to the point that you can put it across to the layman in the pub or to, you know, my uncle who was always asking me, why is my tax money paying for you to do that? Um, you know, it was a valid question. It wasn't an easy one to answer, but it was a valid question. And I think we'd have to really resist the idea that using other modes of storytelling, other, other registers, other kinds of language is dumbing down, it's oversimplifying. To be honest, if what you produce feels dumbed down, you've not done it right. Because to me, it's about clarifying. It's not the same thing as simplifying. I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on how you as a professional do that. How, how do you start to work out, am I pitching this at the right level? What are your tactics that you use? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, just to agree with you, simple is powerful. Um, and it, that is absolutely key. And, and again, in, in the world of journalism, you know, you can often say that writing an article for The Sun, where it's going to be shorter and it has to be much more simple, needs a lot of skill. Whereas if you're writing that article for The Times, obviously you still need a lot of skill, but you're right. You have much more space to be able to explain all that. Um, so the more simple it has to be, the harder often it is to construct that. And that's not, you know, that is not easy. Um, the most, I mean, one of the things, is working out what to leave out. Working out what do you leave in and what do you leave out? And often the stuff you, that you leave out is far greater than the stuff you put in to the stuff you choose to include in that story. And the story will almost always be more powerful for that. If the, the more simple and the more concise the story is, quite often the greater the power. So trying to work out what to leave out of that story is key and it's really, really tough. But the more you practice, the better you can get at that. And I think if I was giving some top tips to someone who's starting out with the storytelling, I would say, first of all, once you acknowledge the importance and the power of storytelling, look around you. Where do you see stories being told every day? You know, <clears throat> excuse me, why is that lecture that you've just been to, why was that so engaging? Why is it that you can't take your eyes off that advert? Why do you find that colleague of yours so inspiring? I'm sure the answer to all three of those is quite often comes back to their great storytellers in some way or another. So recognize where stories are being told well around you and learn from it. How have they started that story? How did they put the flesh in the bones? How did they you know, start to unravel that story? What was the climax? What was the resolution? Have a look at how they built that story and you will learn. The other, the, the second thing I would say is, is look at the structure of storytelling and that will sometimes help you to learn what to leave out, just going back to, to your initial question. So in terms of a structure of a story, 
there are four things that you need to look at. The start is the hook. So that's grabbing the audience's attention right from the beginning. As I said, attention is a scarce resource. You need to grab them right at the start. You then build the action. So that is putting the flesh on the bones. You then have a climax, which is the big reveal of the story. And then you have a resolution. Was it a happy ending? Did you change the world? Did you find that cure for COVID? So they're the kind of the four steps. Now, in some ways, I'm reluctant to say there are strict rules when it comes to storytelling, because you will always find exceptions. But if you're starting out on this journey, I think that's a good starting point. And once you have worked out your rough structure and where your story fits into those four categories, I think that that will help you work out, well, hang on a second, what are the details here that I need? What is superfluous to this narrative? And then you can work out what to chuck out. And you have to make some tough decisions. And sometimes there's details that you love, you know, you think, God, I love that detail. But actually, if you were really objective, it's not truly necessary to tell that story well, leave it out. I think what's so interesting in what you're saying is perhaps that there's a slight separation where a journalist comes to speak to someone about the story as opposed to a researcher writing up the work that they've been doing themselves because they're so much more invested so the idea of like what do you leave out it could be something that you spent months on and so that 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 difficult decision making that having I suppose to accept you you may have to lose something from this paper or from this instance that you're telling the story and you have to console yourself with the thought I'll find another place for that now that's not quite so true with the PhD itself for example if we're talking about somebody who's got 80,000 words um, usually there's a space for most of what you've done and you can account for it but almost everything else you do after a dissertation has to be more focused has to you know a, a, a chapter needs to have a clear kind of beginning middle and end you know a paper has to the abstract is the story in miniature to persuade somebody to want to bother reading the article that follows. And I, so I, I think that's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my thread here. What I would say is that difficult decision you have to make about what you let go. I think we should just recognize it's really hard if it's your work. And actually maybe what you need is to talk to someone external, not necessarily a journalist or a researcher developer, but just someone who can help you focus on what really matters because losing the stuff that you're really passionate about is painful. Yeah, I totally agree. Two, two reflections on that. I mean, first of all, I have a huge amount of sympathy for any researcher who is being asked to tell the story of their research in, you know, half an hour or 10 minutes or the kind of questions I ask is to the, for them to pare it down to 45 seconds or 30 seconds. And, you know, I have so much sympathy. If you have been spending three years or four years or more on your, your research and you've got some really exciting stuff to tell, and then you have someone like me saying, right, great, can you just tell me what you've done in 30 seconds? That is unbelievably difficult. And you have to detach yourself emotionally. And, you know, I've been there. I've asked um, these researchers, you know, as when I was working for ITV in Cambridge, I had to ask researchers. I remember one particular person, I was standing in the lab and I said, great, just tell me what you've done. And if you can wrap it up in 30 seconds. And he looked at me as if I was absolutely crazy. And he said, how can I possibly do that? I've been working on this for three years. How can I possibly get this into 30 seconds? And I said, honey, you have to, because if not, I'll be telling the story, not you. And that's the key, isn't it? It's, it's not a choice between telling it in 30 seconds or telling it in five hours it's you tell it in 30 seconds or you don't tell it or if you go to that festival and you have an hour slot it's not the choice between telling it in an hour or telling it in five hours you get it into the one hour or you don't tell it at all and these opportunities to tell your story 
are gold dust. You know, they're your golden ticket to being able to get your story, your message, your work out there. And that's powerful and hugely precious. I completely agree. And I think one of the things, if we're talking about, as it were, the difficult emotional message here, one of them is you're going to have to lose stuff that's precious to you. You're going to, it, it, it feels uncomfortable to distill down into even sort of one tweet, for example, which is what some of the funders have asked for in the past, you know, you explain your project in one single tweet. You know, that's, what is it now, 240 characters, I think. It's really, really painful. But the other thing I think that's quite painful is coming to terms with the fact that nobody is as interested in your research as you are not even your supervisor who don't forget is being paid to help you um, and certainly not your examiners who also are being paid but not very much to read your <laughs> dissertation and I think I don't mean that in a in a cruel way I mean just on a really simple level attention is scarce people are busy there's an awful lot of research out there it has to be the case that it's you don't treat it like what you do is always already interesting you know this is the first um, study to analyze um, 17th century lace making in Norfolk. Well, it might be, but do, why do we need a study of 17th century lace making in Norfolk? It could be that that tells an incredibly powerful social history about, I don't know, whatever it might be. I don't know very much about 17th century Norfolk. I've backed myself into a corner with this. Or it could be um, that your research question, you know, you, there's something very incremental that you've done in your particular area of, you know, experimental sciences and something in kind of the field of protein crystallography, where to you, it's it's a tiny nudge forwards. You've, you've come up with something new or a new, even a protocol in the way an experiment is done. You have to be able to persuade somebody that it will help them. And I think the thing I really liked about your story structure that you were talking about, you know, the hook, the building, the action, the climax, and then the resolution is actually, we mirror that in academia, you know, the hook is, what's the question? And what's the need for the question? It's never enough to say this is what I'm looking at. It's always, you know, why does it matter that we don't have an answer to this? Or what can't we do at the moment? Why is it bad that nobody has looked at, you know, this particular facet of lace making? Then you go into the approach, you build the action, how did you do it? Then the conclusions, you know, the climax, what did you find out? What's the answer to the question? And the resolution is, and now who cares? Who benefits from this? What are we gonna do with this? And I think, you know, you might be thinking of that as a, a journalistic kind of story in a way, you know, that where it will get the audience's attention and keep them with you through whatever that, you know, one, three, five, ten minute package might be. But actually, it's exactly the same structure that we use in um, long form uh, research like dissertations and books, in chapters, in articles, in um, papers, in abstracts. It's, it's exactly the same structure that we use. And if you miss the bit out where you say why we need an answer to this question and who benefits, you're treating it as if the person receiving this always already understands why your work is important. And that to me is just so dangerous and it's absolutely fatal on the job market in particular. Yeah, indeed. I mean, first reflection, my goodness, darling, you are brutal when it comes to lace making in Norfolk. Um, number two, I would I would agree, you know, why do people care? That is so fundamental when it comes to any kind of communication, you know, why do they care? And why should they care? Why do you believe they should care? Because if you can answer that question um, and and hook them in with that, then you're halfway there. And of course, a lot of these things I'm saying that, you know, they're principles and someone listening to this podcast might not find all of it 
helpful or applicable to what they're doing, but they might come away with two or three things where, you know what, I can make that work within my PhD or within that festival where I'm, where I'm telling those people about what I'm doing or within that um, lay summary. I can actually use that, that particular nugget in what I'm doing. And this is what it's about. It's, it's taking some of these principles of storytelling and seeing where you can apply it because the more times you can make it work for you, the likelihood is that the more powerful your communication is going to be. So why do people care? That comes down to the hook of your story. You know, quite often that is going to help you work out where your starting point is. And so, you know, I'll give you an example. If you're, um, say you're working on a pill that, that cleans water with 50% of the usual cost. Okay. I don't personally go around using pills to clean my water. Therefore, I'm not that interested in that. However, if you, to me, if you start drawing the dots for me, so you say this pill that I've come up with will help save your local council hundreds of thousand pounds each year, which could potentially cut your council tax bill or could potentially give money to the local school that your child's at. Now I'm interested. Now I want to hear more about that. And so what you have to do is to draw the dots for your audience. So you need to signpost for them why they should be interested. And sometimes that means making quite a few different leaps from your research to their reality but it's worth it because if you go the if you go the extra mile to make that connection, you'll get them at the start. And if I mean you have to get them at the start, otherwise they ain't going to stay with you. So they're not going to hear your resolution, which is what you want them to hear. I think one of the things I've noticed over the years is particularly when people are consciously trying to speak to um, lay audiences, you know, different kind of publics, um, the way that they often reach for a kind of hook sentence and I often think they, they they misjudge what that hook is supposed to be so what you often find is something which is not about them or the work they're doing it's just a vanilla kind of presentation of the topic they're working on so you might get people saying the hook is you know fossil fuel stocks are rapidly depleting and and we're, we're as, a, as societies we're forced to look into renewable sources of energy well but we know that that there's no new information you've given there. There's nothing particular to you. That's not advancing any kind of knowledge of the topic. And also hitting people with stuff they've already heard a thousand times before is not a great hook. Or, you know, poor diet and high alcohol consumption are factors leading to adverse health outcomes was something I saw in a lay summary not, not so long ago. I think, okay, fine, but I know that. So you've just spent whatever that is, 15 words or something, not actually hooking me in at all. But can you find... Can you find something in this story which I haven't heard before or which is particularly interesting? So one of the ones that um, I always remember is um, somebody's hook was that um, lower back pain um, was a is a chronic problem and it affects millions of people in the UK. And I think the particular hook was that it's one of the most prevalent forms of chronic disease. Um, and chronic ill health in the, in the UK. And yet there's almost no research been done into um, chronic lower back pain because it's experienced by so many people and it's quite low level, it's not life-saving. And I mean, I've not done justice to that, but I remember that hook, like that worked for me because it was personal. I could relate to the idea of um, lower back pain and I could particularly relate to the idea that we've overlooked this and it's a problem. You know, there are people suffering and nobody's trying to help them. It's, it's the hook there for me and I think it's very difficult again this goes back to is 
clarifying the same thing as dumbing down. No, it shouldn't be. Avoid those very vanilla kind of topic sentences and get to them. Who are you and what are you doing? What's the new knowledge we're getting and why do people need it? And I would say, uh, the, I've done lots of work with researchers over the years. It takes multiple iterations. Your first answer to the question, why is this work important, will not be good enough. Your fifth answer to that question probably still won't be good enough. So you have to be prepared to keep talking to different people and keep testing that out with them and I completely agree with you it's it's the only way that you're going to get the attention that you are actually really wanting and then be able to hold it yeah indeed I mean that that chronic pain example you gave there is a fantastic example of a great hook and you're right that takes practice and, and I think going back to an earlier point you said um you know, how do you practice that? Well, apart from what I said about, you know, you look out for great stories all around us because that can help, but talk to your friends down the pub. And ideally there'll be friends who aren't necessarily working in the same area as you. So they can be really objective about telling you whether you've got an interesting hook and, you know, talking it through with other people helps you practice the storytelling, but testing out what, what flies, what doesn't. And just, I thought it's very interesting that you remember that chronic pain example, that has stuck in your memory. And um, I think one thing worth saying is that research shows, I mean, this is terrifying with stat, research, show, research shows that we forget around 50% of what's said to us within an hour, and that rises to 90% within a week. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. That's the um, forgetting her curve by Herman uh, Ebbinghaus, if anyone wants to look him up. Um, stories make your message more memorable. And it's been suggested that it makes your, mes your message more memorable 22 times more memorable than just a normal kind of message you put out there without that storytelling package, which I think is extraordinary. And I think that's shown in what you say, you know, you remember that research because there was an excellent way of telling it. They had a great start to that. And clearly you read through. And that is, you know, once you've cracked that skill, God, what a skill to have in your, you know, in your, in your toolkit. I think there's something that we have to get used to we have to get used to, essentially, particularly if this is a delivering a presentation or a talk, we have to get used to hearing our own voice saying these things out loud. And certainly on the job market as well, you know, in an interview, if, if you get a question or in a chalk and talk or whatever it might be, depending on your subject, where you're going to have to hear your voice saying to some people who have something to offer you, like a job or funding or something, you know, this is my hook. So I'm remembering now that I've brought it up that it's, it's three in four people will suffer from um, chronic lower back pain in their lives. And it's the leading cause of disability in the UK. Now that's the most recent NHS data that was so it took me a moment, but that's actually the essence of what the person was um, trying to tell me. Um, but it, I think when we're accustomed to a certain kind of mode of writing and of talking about our research where, you know, there are no people in the story, we use very technical jargon, everyone else we're talking to knows what this particular kind of technique is. It, there's a degree of discomfort with hearing ourselves talk in a different way. And I think the problem is if the first time you hear yourself using this hook is in the job interview or in that big conference or the first time you're speaking at the Festival of Ideas, no wonder it feels so uncomfortable. And to me, there's a really important thing about getting used to what it sounds like when you're telling the story of your research in, in different modes, using different language. And the best way to get used to it is to be doing it and try it on your friends in safe environments, try it on your family, try it with other researchers that are also struggling with the same kinds of questions. I mean, not if it's the person sitting next to you in the lab, chances are that you have the same <laughs> expertise and you need to, you know, in college, maybe if you're, a, if you're a PhD student or postdocs, if you 
through the PDOC Society or the Postdoc Academy, talk to people in different disciplines and start to get used to the experience of hearing yourself say what you do and why you do it in slightly different language. Because if you take that discomfort with you onto the job and funding market, that's a really difficult position to be operating from. Yeah, exactly. It's practicing, it's practicing, it's practicing and practicing with different audiences, which is exactly what you just said. It's trying it out with the different audiences, but also hearing what's their reaction. You know, are they asking you questions? What are the questions they're asking you? Are they asking you no questions? Maybe that's not a good sign. It's it's those kind of things. And um, another person that is interesting to look up if you're you know interested in finding out a bit more about, you know, this kind of power of storytelling. Um, there's a scientist in the US called Paul Zak, and he's uh, done a lot of research into what our brains do when we are listening to some great stories and he argues um, that his research shows that the brain releases oxytocin when they're when they're listening to a really great story that's being told well um, and oxytocin is, is the hormone obviously associated with social bonding and trust and empathy so um, it's you know it helps us become motivated and feel connected and so you can see that when you're talking to the audience if you are telling your story well you will see that in their reaction. You'll see as to whether they're listening to what you're saying, whether they're connected, whether they are asking the questions or are the questions they're asking, are they showing there's comprehension there or have they missed the point? You know, and the more you practice that, the more you'll see what's working, what's not, um, what really helps get that message across. Yeah, I think that's so interesting about the, you know, the, as it were, the physiological reaction we have to storytelling. I think that that really cements for me in a way, like why this is so powerful. I'm conscious of the time, Emma. So I just wondered, do you want to wrap up with any particular top tips? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you really want to leave our researchers with? Do you know, I think number one, I think recognizing how storytelling can help you in day to day life not just in your career, but in communicating generally. If you can recognize that as a starting point, I think um, that's likely to be of great help for you in a variety of different um, situations that you find yourself. And secondly, once you move on to, okay, great, I get that, now how can I get better at it? I would say just you know think about these three things, and we mentioned it already, but I would say go over this message, keep it simple. When you're telling your story, keep it simple. It's tough but it's powerful. Make it personal. We've said that already. You need your audience to connect. You have to do the hard work for them. How does this relate to their lives? Make it personal. And the third thing is just practicing. You know, again, we've said that already, but if you can do those three things, keeping it simple, making it personal and practicing, then I think you will be well on your way to telling great stories. That's fantastic advice. Thanks so much, Emma. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you found that RD audio recording useful. If you would like to look at past recordings, you can find these on our website, www.rdp.cam.ac.uk forward slash RD audio, or you can find them on whichever platform you choose to get your podcasts from. I mentioned at the beginning, we'd be really glad to hear from you if you have suggestions for future episodes or feedback on the sessions we've already done. Please consider subscribing and if you have a couple of minutes to spare, we'd be really grateful if you would leave a rating on your podcast platform. Thanks again. Bye.